To learn more about Seminars at Steamboat or to view the video recording of this seminar, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. Good evening and a literal warm welcome as we continue with the 21st season of Seminars at Steamboat. I'm Walt Abbott, Seminars Chair, and we are so pleased to present the third of our five public policy presentations this season. They range from emerging technologies in the environment to social justice and international affairs. And by the way, I'm really proud to tell you that this is the 90th seminar in our history. The Seminars Board strives to present seminars that shed light on key issues. Our lineup of expert speakers brings fresh perspectives that challenge our thinking and inspire our actions. But your presence here reflects your commitment to staying informed and engaging in critical discussions. The Seminars Board wishes to extend our deep gratitude to our sponsors, to all our sponsors, and all our volunteers who make this series possible. Your support here enables us to present these impactful presentations year after year and all at no cost of admission. We do that with your donations and we appreciate keeping us, your keeping uh, us in your giving plans. We especially want to recognize this evening's seminar sponsor, the Shavy Family Foundation, And also today's supporting sponsors, Holly and Gary Nelson, and Gay Rohn. Video recordings of all seminars are available with closed captioning by going to uh, YouTube and searching for seminars at Steamboat. You can also get them by going to our website. We encourage you to share the link to these presentations. All seminars are available who may not be able to be here this evening. Public radio podcasts of all seminars are available via KUNC Public Radio of Northern Colorado. You can link to the podcasts as well as the videos by going to their website, KUNC.org, and looking for shows and podcasts in the upper left corner. And now, here to introduce this evening's speaker and moderate the Q&A session is Seminar's board member, Kate Hawk. Thank you. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. We are so pleased to have you with us for Matthew Rojansky's talk on Russia, Ukraine, and beyond. In the 1990s, most of us thought that the Cold War was over. We were wrong. Vladimir Putin's expansionist ambitions and his brutal war against Ukraine have devastated Ukraine and its people, caused thousands of young Russian professionals to flee their country, reset many other nations' estimate of their own national security, strengthened the EU and NATO, and had ripple effects on the wider world. Our speaker is uniquely qualified to give us a nuanced view of these issues. Matt is not only an accomplished scholar, 
with a wide-ranging knowledge of the leaders and politics involved. He also has a strong empathy for the Russian and Ukrainian people, and that informs his understanding of the human ramifications of the conflict. He has many personal friends in the region, keeps up with numerous blogs and inf individual information sources, and in his current incarnation as head of the US-Russia Foundation, a private grant-making organization, is able to provide grants to further democracy and the rule of law in Russia and Ukraine. Before that, Mal Matt was director of the Wilson Center's Kennedy Kennan Institute, the premier US institution for research on Russia. He was previously deputy director of the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he founded Carnegie's Ukraine program. He's been a much sought expert commentator for major print and broadcast media. This is Matt's third time to appear as a seminars at Steamboat Speaker, and we are delighted to welcome him back again. Good evening, everyone. Um, tremendous thanks to Walt and to Kate uh, and to Gary and Holly Nelson and uh, Bob and Jane Stein, Malcolm Hawk, of course, and, and the entire board and tonight's sponsors. Um, it is incredible to be back in Steamboat. I've come to really love this place. And since it is my third time back, I'd like to let you know we have a season pass available for Matt Rajansky. <laughs> Go up and down Matt Rajansky as many times as you want. No, wait, sorry, I got confused with the gondola. Um, Kate, Kate gave a, a, a lovely and kind introduction. It was one of those that uh, my father would have loved and my mother might have believed. Uh, what, what Kate didn't tell you, and which I'll tell you now, is, is why I do what I do. So slide, please. Who am I and why am I here? Um, this, this isn't something I talk about a lot. Uh, I've done a lot of media and a lot of lectures and a lot of writing. Um, don't talk a whole lot about myself, but I think I, I owe it to this audience uh, since I'm almost a local now here in Steamboat. <laughs> My family has its origins in Eastern Europe, in the lands of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, and has had basically nasty experiences with all size. Uh, tsars and emperors, reds and whites, nationalists and insurgencies of all kinds. Um, so of course, my family said, never, ever go back there. And so I did. Uh, it was a bit of a teenage rebellion, and three decades later, I guess that stuck, because here I am. I would also offer that you ought to be careful what you read about me on the internet. Um, sometimes you're the expert, sometimes you're the story. As a former boss of mine said, when both sides are attacking you, you're probably doing something right. So there's chess champion Gary Kasparov saying, I'm paid by the Kremlin. Uh, and then a couple of years later, there's the Kremlin putting me on their sanctions list. I'm in good company, by the way. Stephen Colbert and uh, President Obama and a few others are on that list. I always expected to see my name in lights with Stephen Colbert, although not on a Russian sanctions list. <laughs> and of course, this is the art of learning about a region by being in the region, walking around. And I've spent a lot of time doing that um, from my 20s to my 30s, with my family, on my own, uh, all over Eurasia. Uh, and while I missed the Soviet Union because of my generation, I saw plenty of its aftermath. And I think that one way of thinking about what we're going to talk about in more detail tonight is that it is, in effect, part of the ongoing collapse of the Soviet Union. A couple of things to get out of the way <laughs> about my work. Um, next slide. Um, <laughs> So 
here are some things we don't do. We don't read Putin's mind. Um, we're usually pretty bad at it. And these two examples, I think, are quite illustrative. Uh, when George W. Bush first met Vladimir Putin in 2001, and he looked into his eyes and looked into his soul, and Putin told him this possibly apocryphal story about rescuing the cross from his burned-down dacha and how important religion was to this man raised in the Soviet KGB, and Bush bought it and said that this was a man whose soul he understood and, and that he could be partners with. But, but then there's the other story, which is that uh, Putin intentionally and maliciously brought this vicious dog, you see how vicious the dog is, out to intimidate Angela Merkel, who famously was terrified of dogs. And this is also not widely known, but a colleague uh, and, and mentor of mine who happened to have met with Putin not long before this actually talked about dogs with Putin. And she's a woman, and, and Putin revealed that he thought that the quickest way to earn the affection of a female guest was to bring out his dog and show how much he cared for his dog and so on. So just never assume malice when simple misunderstanding might suffice to explain. We're not very good at knowing what's in Vladimir Putin's mind, whether it's one thing or another. Um, next slide, please. We're also very bad at what I call the game of counting liver spots, right? Figuring out how healthy is he, how sick is he, when might he go? Remember, we did this back in the Soviet era. Didn't work out very well. And we are particularly bad at this game, which is predicting succession. Um, I would tell you that your odds are equally good with this theory as with almost anything that an expert like me would tell you. And this is the, the bad hair day theory. It's hairy, bald, hairy, bald, hairy, bald. We're on bald right now. So it stands to reason that I could be the next leader of Russia, uh, as long as I keep this stuff. Uh, another thing we don't do is we don't do essentialism, right? The stuff that you hear all the time. Russians are genetically slavish people, or genetically dishonest, or imperialist, inherently so, or soulful, good, bad. Russians are Russians, they're people, right? We're people. There are people who are dishonest, and honest, and imperialist, and anti-imperialist. Russians are people. And facts are facts, right? Like it or not, Russia is, at present, the only other state in the world, besides our own, that has the capability, within one hour, of ending life on this planet as we know it. And that, of course, is if the leader of Russia decides to use nuclear weapons, which only he can decide to do. With an arsenal of over 6,000 of them, this is a fact that we must take into account. It's a stubborn fact. Russia also isn't going anywhere. It sits astride two continents and 11 time zones. It's the biggest Arctic littoral state. It has the greatest wealth of mineral, fossil fuel, forest, and even freshwater resources. And I love to remember a line when President Obama was sort of trying to put Russia in its place, something we struggle to do all the time because we don't want to have to be worried about Russia every hour of every day. Even those of us who get paid to do that don't want to have to do that. And President Obama said, well, look, at the end of the day, it's just a regional power. And I loved the rejoinder from the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, who said, yes, we agree, as long as it's from the Arctic to the Middle East and from East Asia to the Baltic. That's our region, right? So yeah, Russia's an, a regional power. Um, and we can't fully isolate Russia for that same reason, though, of course, we can cut ties, we can impose very stringent sanctions, but those will be a two-way street, and we'll talk more about that tonight. There are going to be costs that we ourselves have to pay. And then, of course, one of the hardest and stickiest facts is that, like it or not, Russia is ruled by Vladimir Putin. And that means that all of this power, right, all of this size, all of this potential is fundamentally in his hands. So just to signpost to you what I want to try to cover tonight and keep within the time you've generously given me, um, I want to talk a little bit more about Putin and Russia. 
Um, I want to talk about Zelensky and Ukraine. I want to talk about the global impacts of these two nations being at war. And then finally, I want to offer you a look at how I understand the U.S. national interest relative to what's going on. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say solution. I didn't say peace. I didn't say magic, because those are all the same thing. I'm not going to be able to deliver that for you tonight. Um, so let's start, next slide please, with Putin and Russia. Who is this guy? Uh, you probably have all heard at some point or other that he was born after World War II in St. Petersburg, so the legacy of the siege of Leningrad, the horrors of the millions killed in World War II, was a very heavy and significant part of his childhood, just as it was for others growing up there. Uh, members of his family, his own older brother, whom he never met, were killed in the siege. Um, he decided early on in his life to join the KGB. He was, among many other things, he did have a role in KGB counterintelligence. He's a fairly sophisticated guy, whether you choose to describe him as a failed KGB officer or a modestly successful mid-level officer. He had KGB training, and he knew what he was talking about. Um, after the Soviet collapse, he comes back from East Germany, where he had been stationed in the 1980s, and works as deputy to the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, who then proceeds to lose his next election. And so Putin, through a series of fortuitous connections, which may have been driven by KGB, may have been partly driven by mafia, may have been anything, really, uh, is brought to Moscow, where he impresses Boris Yeltsin and a number of other powerful figures, including oligarchs, whom he later takes on and effectively eliminates, in some cases physically, uh, as competent, uh, responsible, he doesn't drink, he gives the image of someone in whom power could be entrusted. Um, and in fact, when he becomes Boris Yeltsin's hand-picked successor in the year 2000, and then is in fact elected in what was probably the last free and fair election under his rule, um, he demonstrated really a, a fairly technocratic, competent approach to governance in Russia uh, and a fairly open and friendly approach to the United States. So in fact, you know, in all fairness to George W. Bush in 2001, when he did look into Putin, Putin's eyes, he was looking at a different Putin. Right? He was looking at the Putin of nearly a quarter century ago, who was the first to call Washington after the 9-11 attacks to offer his assistance, which he in fact did in Afghanistan and, and many other places. But something changed. Next slide, please. In 2007, he broke with the idea of Russia and the West in partnership. And really, almost everything since that time was a continuation of that break. Now, it's easy to say, "'Twas ever thus," right? Or it's easy to say, Putin changed. It was like this up to 2007, then afterwards it was like that. In fact, it's a little of both. But a factor that I think is underappreciated is environment. Next slide, please. And that environment is more than anything about what was happening in the broader Eurasian region and indeed around the world. It was a series of democratic uprisings, democratic revolutions, in some cases successful, in some cases unsuccessful, in some cases temporarily successful, which shaped an atmosphere in which Putin viewed the future of his own regime as being linked to what he saw as largely American-backed efforts to foment revolution from below. The so-called color revolutions, which took place in particular throughout the post-Soviet periphery, some of them have been rolled back or have become irrelevant since then, and one of the most significant of which, more on this soon, was, of course, in Ukraine, the Orange Revolution of 2004. So by the 2010s, Putin is experiencing this kind of paranoia that we are coming for him. We are coming for his regime. And he hooks onto that quite a lot 
of policy initiatives, whether it's opposing the American writ geopolitically, right, trying to lead an alternative to the United States, um, trying to uh, counter the United States, so-called active measures to try to bring the fight to the United States, right? This is the so-called, you can do it to us, well, look, we can do it to you too in the elections and so on. And then what really changes, because I have to get us up to the present day, you all know what's coming next, right? I don't want to spend half an hour just getting to the start of this war. Why would a man who had been largely rational, and whether you agree or disagree with the choices he made, and I think most of us would disagree, he was at least rational about self-preservation. Why would he do something as catastrophic as invade a country as unprepared and as uninterested in being occupied by the Russian army as Ukraine was? And I think the single biggest reason is this, pandemic isolation. Vladimir Putin is not someone who reads the internet. He's not someone who listens to a wide variety of sources. He's not someone who welcomes debate, and he's been in power for a quarter of a century, which means the few people who had access to the body, who had access to the man, for the two-plus years of Putin's pandemic isolation were the people who shaped his worldview. Now, I cannot tell you exactly who they were, but I can tell you what they told him. They told him, and this was information that flowed to them, from people who were interested in providing this information. They told him that Ukraine was a place where the Russian military would be welcomed with flowers, with bread and salt, and the Ukrainian people would join in helping to remove their Western-backed, nationalist, Nazi, fascist government. This was the narrative. And that Putin could essentially establish his rule simply by marching into Kiev. That's what he was told. That is the only, I say that by process of elimination, that is the only rational explanation for why he did what he did. Otherwise, we have to conclude the man is simply crazy, right? And there are very few other things that he's done that appear to be simply crazy. So I think what he did was he created a vacuum of information. He allowed into that vacuum only very, very few voices, and he got very, very bad information. Several other things happened during that two-year period that reinforced the idea of paranoia about revolutions from below. You had the protests and the, the near color revolution in Belarus in August of 2020, a million people on the streets of the city of Minsk in a country of nine million people. Do the math. That is an enormous upsurge of popular opposition to Putin's closest ally, even though they're not friends, closest really only ally in the world, Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus. Next slide. January of 2022, literally on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine, you had another popular uprising, largely against power, not necessarily a democratic uprising, but very much against authoritarian power in Kazakhstan, which would be probably Putin's second closest and second oldest ally, also on Russia's southern border. Um, and then, of course, capping it all off is, is Putin's announcement of the invasion on February 24th, 2022, which was so patently, so clearly demonstrative of someone with a completely different state of mind than would a normal grounded leader. I mean, look at him sitting you know, 50 feet away from his entire security cabinet, his famous speech in which he is wearing the exact same outfit in speeches that were delivered, broadcast, recorded, several hours, days apart, right? This was all done in a vacuum, in a bunker, in advance. The man was not exposed to what is supposed to be the policy process in the Russian government. All right, so he's invaded Ukraine. 
You all remember photos like this because the U.S. government, in fact, did something quite unprecedented, which was to release a lot of classified intelligence, in effect, to blunt Putin's ability uh, to enjoy and exploit the element of surprise. And this wasn't a surprise from a certain perspective, which is that all through the spring of 2021, so nearly a year earlier, right, from, let's say, March, April 2021, so nearly a year before February of 2022 when the invasion happened, Putin had actually gathered 100,000 troops on Ukraine's northern and eastern borders and had put all the supplies in the field that those troops would need to mount an invasion. And, of course, the U.S. knew about it. And President Biden chose to go to a summit, I think it was a rational thing to do, with Vladimir Putin and simply to say to him directly, don't do this. And he said it through emissaries. And in fact, it appeared to work, right? Because while they didn't completely withdraw everything from the field, the Russians stood down. And there was no invasion during the fighting season of 2021, right? That summer uh, or even uh, that fall. It wasn't until the following winter. Volodymyr Zelensky, who I'll talk about in just a moment, the, the then you know, relatively new, relatively untested president of Ukraine, in fact, refused to believe, or perhaps did believe but refused to publicly acknowledge what he was being told about what was about to happen, uh, in part because he didn't want to bring, bring upon Ukraine early exactly the kind of damage to Ukraine's economy, the flight of millions of people, the chaos of a wartime state of mind uh, when he didn't have to. And many people have, have disputed that decision, but I think from a certain perspective, that was actually quite a responsible thing to do, to try to maintain an environment in which, at a minimum, Ukraine would be able to organize its defense rather than losing the people and the material uh, and the wealth that it needed to do so. So, of course, the invasion happens, um, and we know how it goes, right? For several days, it's sort of touch and go. You know, the Russian columns are moving straight for Kiev, but then we see... They're not really moving that far. They're getting bogged down. The Ukrainians are showing up in all the right places at the right times. The special forces landing at the airport gets just encircled and obliterated, right? So this operation from, you know, week one at a minimum is not going the way it's supposed to go, back to what I said about bad information, right? These were tanks and trucks and armored personnel carriers and troops on foot who went in with three days of food, not three weeks of food and with supply lines that were not prepared for the kind of extended fighting that they had to do in the wintertime, uh, and with the expectation that they would be joined by and supported by Ukrainian collaborators at a much higher rate. They did have some. I mean, we should be very honest about that, right? They had Ukrainian collaborators, uh, but they expected a huge groundswell of support, and it didn't come. Uh, this is, by the way, what I describe as the Ahmed Chalabi problem. If any of you remember Ahmed Chalabi before the invasion of Iraq, telling the U.S. government, oh, the Americans will be welcomed, everything will be wonderful, we'll join you, we'll rise up, we'll become a democracy, right? So Putin was listening to people who were telling him what they thought he wanted to hear. And just to give you a sense of scale, right, the Russians didn't just come in towards Kiev, right, in the north of the country. That would be difficult enough. They came in along an enormous arc, uh, an arc that if you were to compare it in American terms, it runs from Cleveland to Buffalo to New York City to Washington to Roanoke, Virginia, right? That was the arc of the Russian invasion. So an enormous, massive front on which the Ukrainians had to essentially overnight mobilize their defenses. Now, why Ukraine, right? Because I've mentioned Belarus, I've mentioned Kazakhstan. Was, is Ukraine the bad child? Like, why would Putin go after Ukraine? He had to discipline them in particular. I used to teach a class on Ukraine at a couple of different uh, universities in Washington. 
Next slide. And I could go way, way back in explaining the many, many ways in which Ukrainians have always challenged rule from Moscow, uh, even when they have been part of the Russian Empire, part of the Soviet Union. It's an old, old story. But I think it's more useful for this discussion to start from 1991. In 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the deal was, and this was a deal that was struck by a few of the not really elected, essentially appointed communist leaders who became leaders of the constituent republics of the Soviet Union, those 15 republics. The deal that they struck in order to each become essentially president of his own independent country was, let's keep it simple. Everyone keeps the borders that they had within the Soviet Union. Everyone keeps the property that exists within those borders, with very few exceptions, like, for example, nuclear weapons in Ukraine or the Black Sea Fleet based in Crimea. Very few exceptions. Most all the property within those borders. Uh, and Russia succeeds the Soviet Union in terms of international debts, but also international reserves, uh, embassy properties, and so on. That was the basic deal. And the Ukrainians accepted that deal, and the Russians at that time accepted that deal. But there was this problem of the Soviet nuclear arsenal, which was very heavily deployed in Ukraine, because, of course, Ukraine was facing the bad guys, us. And so in 1994, and actually throughout the 1990s, the Ukrainians uh, struck a bargain with us, with Russia, and with the other permanent nuclear weapons powers. Um, the most famous moment of this is 1994 in Budapest, the so-called Budapest Memorandum, which you've probably heard of. Uh, and the idea there, as I say, is an assurance is apparently not a guarantee. The Ukrainians received assurances that their sovereignty would be respected by all of these nuclear powers, including Russia, in exchange for which they gave up their nuclear weapons, sent them, in fact, to Russia, filled in the silos, destroyed the launchers, the strategic bombers, etc. So Ukraine gave up a strategic nuclear deterrent. Now, it's a little more complicated than that. The reality was, as many experts at that time and since have explained, had this country that suddenly was independent and that lacked the entire supply chain that was in Russia and other parts of the Soviet Union for maintaining that nuclear infrastructure, remember, this is the country that had just experienced Chernobyl in 1986, had they kept those nuclear weapons, there was a very high risk of there being an environmental and human disaster having to do with inability just in those circumstances, the chaos of post-1991, to maintain that nuclear arsenal. And in exchange, they actually got quite a bit of assistance, principally from the United States, uh, in order to rebuild and, and transition their economy. Though it was, no one should have any doubts, it was a very difficult period. And that difficult period of the 1990s, you could argue, next slide, culminated in the critical year of the Orange Revolution, 2004. This is when the Ukrainian people rise up and throw off this sort of corrupt post-Soviet, you know, kind of uh, warmed-over uh, communist apparatchik leadership by turning out in the streets and bringing in a pro-Western democratic government. This is Ukraine's first color revolution. This is when Putin starts to get very, very nervous about what is happening in the biggest and in many ways closest country to Russia, the one to which many Russians have direct personal and family ties, have lived in, have done business in. If a democratic revolution of this kind can happen in Ukraine, what could happen in Russia? One of the goals of Ukraine's new democratic government after 2004 was to join NATO, and they asked many, many times. You think they're asking a lot now. They asked a lot back then as well. And the answer at, Bucharest, at the Bucharest-NATO summit of 2008 was, yes, sort of. Uh, and that was a yes without a timeline, a yes without a process. 
And it was a yes that ultimately was not only unsatisfying, but very, very dangerous. Uh, it was a yes to Ukraine and also a yes to Georgia, another post-Soviet republic in the Caucasus that didn't have any shared borders uh, with NATO and is separated by the Black Sea, but nonetheless wanted in and had its own democratic color revolution. And as a result, I think, of that declaration, of the signaling that the West, in fact, wanted to bring Georgia in, but wasn't going to do it right away and wasn't going to offer any protection, Putin goes into Georgia in 2008. Complex circumstances, you know, there was certainly shooting on both sides. Uh, but the Georgia war was meant to be a signal to the West that this you must not do. You must not expand your security writ into my neighborhood, into my domain, my empire. This was Putin's message. And Putin more or less got what he wanted in Ukraine a little bit later. Uh, this guy called Viktor Yanukovych, uh, who was basically a creature of the previous period, the pre-Orange Revolution period. He comes to power through basically a free and fair election. Ukraine actually has a lot of free and fair elections. It's one of the things that's special about Ukraine in the post-Soviet space. Um, and this is how he lived. You know, he, um, that's public parkland, by the way, where he built himself an enormous mansion, uh, which actually had gold toilets. I have seen them. I have been there. Real gold toilets. It's, it's a public park again now, which is like pretty weird to have gold toilets in a public park. But... Um, that was Viktor Yanukovych. And so, you know, not very surprisingly, when Yanukovych tried to play footsie with all sides, telling the European Union, yes, yes, we'd very much like to join you, please give us $50 billion, and then telling Putin, no, no, don't worry, we're with you, can you give me $15 billion? What's the best you can do? Right? He was doing what he had always done, right? Which is, you know, extract bribes and channel them to gold toilets. No, I'm kidding, you know, just. Well, his son, as an example, his son, Sasha Yanukovych, was a dentist. It was a dentist who was estimated to be worth $300 million. It gives you a sense of just how corrupt this regime. I don't know, maybe some dentists do really, really well. Um, next slide. So, so when, when, when push comes to shove, right, Yanukovych had promised to sign this deal with the European Union, the Ukrainian people, after, you know, one revolution, were already convinced that our path is with the West. He then balks at the very last minute, this is November of 2013, and basically it's Orange Revolution 2.0. Millions of people flow into the streets of Kyiv and demand that Yanukovych sign the agreement, and things get rather ugly uh, rather quickly um, by, the, by the winter time, right? This starts in November, it's Eastern Europe in November, so it's cold, and people continue to occupy the public square, and by December and January and February, it becomes quite violent. Um, 100 people are killed in a very, very bad day in February. Bad things seem to happen in Ukraine in February. Uh, the so-called Heavenly Hundred, right? These are the first kind of martyrs, if you will, of Ukraine's second democratic revolution. And then that same month, Putin sends these guys, the so-called little green men, remember them? Or polite little green men, as the Russians like to call them. These are basically Russian troops. It's obvious they're Russian troops. They speak, you know, Russian, Russian, uh, and they don't have any insignia on their shoulders, but they're carrying Russian weapons and riding Russian vehicles. And they basically seize Crimea without really having to fire a shot, and they take the bulk of the Ukrainian Black Sea fleet. You know, this is sort of the bolt from the blue um, operation. And Putin also triggers the Donbass insurgency. So really, when we talk about the invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, it's the second invasion of Ukraine. The first invasion of Ukraine took Crimea and started this bleeding insurgency in, uh, in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass. Even after all of this, 
after Russia invades, after the Maidan revolution, after booting out Yanukovych and electing new leaders and becoming much closer to the West, processes in Ukraine are slow and are complicated. And part of the reason for this is it has been historically very divided. It has been a country that's been divided between different imperial legacies, different linguistic zones, different religious zones. And even with Crimea taken, and you can see, right, Crimea did have a very large percentage of Russian speakers and self-identified ethnic Russians, even with that taken away, and even with that chunk of Donbass taken away, you can see still from the colors, this was, this was a very divided country. And so things are moving slowly, not only because of that, also because, next slide, these guys, the oligarchs, right? You know, you have a country of 45 million people with a $200 billion GDP, which is you know, not much compared to big countries, not what it should be, but there's plenty there to steal, right? So lots of stealing, lots of internecine conflict, major challenges to rule of law, and so things are moving slowly. And because of that, next slide, and now finally I get to our friend Volodymyr Zelensky, he comes along. And this is a guy who had literally been an actor and played the president in a very popular television show, and he says, I wanna try this in real life. And his message, to the then president, who, by the way, is one of the oligarchs, Petro Poroshenko, the candy man, the, the chocolate baron. He owns literally like a candy empire. He was president at the time, after the Maidan revolution, after the Russian invasion, and he's not doing anything. And Zelensky's message is, I am not your opponent. I am your sentence, right? This is like a kind of anti-anti-anti-campaign. And incredibly, as a result, next slide. And you remember these previous maps I showed you of how divided the country is. Those are all the regions of Ukraine that Zelensky won. That is unprecedented in the history of Ukraine, right? As a matter, you know, former Austro-Hungarian Empire, former Polish Empire, former Russian Empire. He won across the country, right? And so this showed you just how fed up the Ukrainian people are, that they would, you know, this is like electing John Stewart president of Ukraine. <laughs> it, really, it is. And, and by the way, you know, I mean, some, some of you, probably know the history of Ukraine. He's also Jewish, right? Maybe not practicing, but ethnically he's Jewish. So it really is like electing John Stewart president of Ukraine, which is a huge deal in Ukraine, right? This shows you not only what Zelensky achieved, but again, just how fed up the Ukrainian people were with business as usual. And Zelensky himself, I think you could say, has risen to the occasion. Uh, he looks pretty different, doesn't he? And that's like less than 10 years of time. Uh, they say the American presidency ages you, right? And try being president of Ukraine. Um, look, Zelensky proved that he could pull a Ronald Reagan, right? He could be an actor who becomes a politician. Um, he's consciously emulating Churchill, and I think we all hope that he succeeds in winning the war, as Churchill did. But I think the challenge that Zelensky has is, can he be Ukraine's George Washington? Right? Can he also win the post-war? Can he win the peace? Um, that is a much bigger challenge for all of the reasons I mentioned before and, and which we can talk about later. Let me turn, I promised in my signpost that I'd talk about the wider world. Why, why should we care about all this? Like, I think it's fascinating. I care about the people there. I've spent a bunch of time there. Well, like, why should all the rest of us care? Um, European security tends to impact global security. Two world wars have started in Europe, and they started from exactly what's happening right now. Dreams of rightful living space, dreams of rightful imperial hinterlands, twisted nationalist narratives that have led to bloody and brutal generations-long hatreds. That's what's happening right now. And that has dragged the world into war twice within the last hundred and change years. Um, Post-World War II, 
was the most peaceful time, largely because Europe has been at peace. A peaceful Europe has enormous capacity to do humanitarian relief, to build up international law and institutions, to do effective peacekeeping missions in other parts of the world. It may not be politically correct to say this, but it's one of those sticky facts. Europe is, in many ways, at the center of the world. And we can't afford to have dysfunction and chaos and misery like this in Europe. Now, in today's Europe, there's no more room for gray spaces. There's no more room for that buffer zone of countries that can kind of absorb one side's ambitions and the other side's ambitions and extract a little rent here and there. Each region, if this continues, is going to see repeats of exactly this. We're going to see wars like this in the Caucasus. We're going to see them in Central Asia, the heart of the world's island continent. We're going to see them rippling into the rest of Europe. We're going to see them in North, North Africa. We're going to see them in the Middle East. But of course, we are inclined to say, because we're Americans, let's do something about it. Let's change it. Let's fix it. Um, and rational people tend to go to the next natural step, which is, well, this is a Putin problem, right? So what we've got to do is get rid of Putin. Be careful what you wish for. Um, there was this guy called Yevgeny Prigozhin, who recently also had that idea. Um, Prigozhin was not a nice man, but he did get actually surprisingly close to Moscow. Um, as you all know, because you probably have not been living in a cave, uh, he mounted up about 10,000 men with some fairly advanced hardware, tanks, and anti-aircraft, and he just started driving to Moscow. And it was really amazing how close he got. Um, he stopped. I think he stopped largely out of self-preservation. He realized he was probably informed by people he was close to within the military structures in Russia that if he kept going, uh, they would, in fact, fight because up to a certain point, 200 kilometers from Moscow, basically the Russian security services didn't fight. They just let him roll through. But what if he had succeeded? What if Evgeny Prigozhin had, had gone to Moscow and Putin had fled, as, as many people were you know, excitedly tweeting and whatever social mediaing that he had done? Well, Putin has fled. His airplane has left. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if he was in his bunker. I don't know if he was you know, skydiving over the Kremlin. I have no idea what Putin was doing at that moment. I don't think anyone does. But I... Take my word for this, if Prigozhin had displaced Putin and become the ruler of Russia, or picked the next ruler of Russia, it would not have solved all the problems I just described. It would have made them much, much worse, if anything. Probably would have been the same, but the same bad, right? Prigozhin is a terrible thug, a war criminal, an executioner of Putin's will. So be very careful what you wish for. Next slide. Um, this cast of characters also, you probably wouldn't want running the Russian Federation Ramzan Kadyrov, this guy's famous not for golden toilets, but for golden Kalashnikovs, right? Uh, I mean, the, the, the folks that Putin has basically gathered in his constellation of the powerful and heavily armed of the Russian Federation are really scary people. Um, so what that means is the prospects for regime change don't necessarily lead to happy, smiley butterflies and democracy in Russia. That said... The regime probably won't last forever. It's stable until suddenly it's not. That tends to be the way authoritarian regimes, especially highly personalized authoritarian regimes, tend to go. Um, another reason that this matters, next slide, is, of course, what I opened with, the nuclear problem. Whether that is the risk of escalation to outright nuclear exchange between Russia and another nuclear armed power. Remember, it's not only us. There are two other ones in Europe. And then there's that other one over in China, and we don't necessarily know where that's going either. So the risk of escalation of a big war in Eurasia can 
at some point go nuclear, but there's also the risk of nuclear accident. You all have probably heard about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It is the biggest operational nuclear power plant in Europe. It's, it's shut down right now, but that doesn't mean that a direct hit on the power plant wouldn't cause this kind. This is a picture of the spread of radioactivity from the Chernobyl fallout. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't cause a disaster like this, which really would be a, a generational, centuries-long disaster. Um, there are proliferation risks. The failure of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum is going to have consequences. Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal. It, it had a choice, right? Again, I, I explained some of the complexity there. Why would other countries in the future that have a choice that could pursue nuclear weapons and have that powerful deterrent or give them up in order to be, you know, nice, good, well-behaved children in the international system, why would they do that? when they look at the example of Ukraine? Why would Ukraine itself, which is a highly sophisticated, scientifically advanced, industrialized nation, why would they not secretly develop their own nuclear weapon? Right? Israel has done it. So I think the proliferation risks coming out of this conflict are of global significance. I mentioned China. I, I almost feel like I don't have to explain this, right? Xi Jinping is watching. We know he wants Taiwan. It's, it's in his program. Like, you should read what dictators write. They tell you what they're going to do. Taiwan is in his program. He's going to take Taiwan. It's so just a question of when. And Vladimir Putin, his closest friend with no limits, right? These are his words. Vladimir Putin is currently showing him both what to do and what not to do in Ukraine. So there are huge lessons and implications. We may not know when. He could wait another decade or he could do it next week. But he's watching closely both what the Ukrainians are able to do and what the Russians are able to do and how we in the West respond. Next slide. This isn't talked about a lot, but I think North Korea is very likely to be uh, one of the hotspots as a result of this conflict. What more perfect opportunity could there be for Kim in North Korea to take advantage of a moment of distraction for all of Europe, even for our East Asian allies? than when there's a major war going on at the opposite end of the continent. And after all, it's a war of imperial reunification, imperial reconquest. That's Putin's narrative. Isn't that also the North Korean narrative, right? That, that South Korea is naturally part of them and should be part of them. Again, I'm not saying that they'll win. I'm saying this would be a great moment for them to make some trouble. And oh, by the way, <laughs> lest any of you say, <clears throat> well, everything will be okay because you see Japan is remilitarizing. That's the reaction I was looking for, yeah. <laughs> I think we have some students of history in this room. Hooray, Germany has more tanks now. You know, like, yes, in this particular context, at this particular moment, good. But I'm not thrilled by the idea that there are more European countries that are spending a bunch more money and buying more weapons, right? Including Germany, the country that started those two world wars that I talked about before, and, and Japan, which has not a great history in East Asia. So that's the moment that we're at. That's what I mean by the disappearance of gray spaces, right? You're with us or you're against us. This is a moment of testing and conflict and very, very high risk in the world. When you think about basic human freedoms, enormous impacts, right? Uh, freedom of movement, uh, impacts on energy and the environment. Uh, you know, ha has anyone ever thought, we keep hearing about how much explosive is being expended, right? How many, how many rounds are being shot in Ukraine? And, and the main question seems to be asked is, well, how can we get more there? And, that, and that's fine. I mean, the Ukrainians need that ammunition. They need to win. They need to defend themselves. But has anyone thought about the environmental implications of just blowing that much stuff up for that long, 
right? This country is being poisoned, and it's the biggest country in Europe, right? The mines in eastern Ukraine that have been flooded that are now leaching poisonous chemicals of all kinds uh, into the groundwater. The destruction of, of one of the biggest dams and reservoirs in Europe causing massive flooding, leaching more poisons into the water and flowing them then out into the sea. And of course, the impact on food, right? I mean, just this week, we're reading about how angry African countries are as they head to a summit in St. Petersburg with the Russians, that the Russians have pulled out of the grain deal and basically are saying they will sink any Ukrainian ship on the Black Sea. By the way, I think this is very unlikely to happen because if you're the guy who owns $20 million worth of grain, are you really going to just test that idea and put it on a ship? No, they're not, which means the Ukrainians aren't going to export that grain. And the Russians have already destroyed 60,000 tons of it through bombing attacks just this season alone. Um, and this, this absurdity, right? Literally, this, this was identified by you know, smart sleuths on the internet. Um, this is from Russian smart bomb drone video, the black and white, showing ostensibly Western mechanized vehicles, Western tanks, that the Russians had destroyed with their smart artillery. But in fact, they're harvesters, combines, whatever you call them. I'm not, I'm not a farmer. But you get the idea. You can very clearly tell those are not tanks. Those are not Leopard tanks. They're not Abrams tanks. Those are our harvesting equipment. And, and this sort of thing happens all the time. Next slide. Um, and then amazingly enough, Corruption is still a problem, right? There are, there are even now Ukrainian officials who are in power who are stealing from their own country, from their own people, uh, and from, from the world. And all of this comes home to roost for the developing world, which for decades has depended on grain exports from Ukraine as, and is increasingly uh, finding itself holding the short end of the stick. And if you care about democracy you have to care about people's material circumstances. Because every I could show you 100 political science articles, all good social science tells you what is intuitively obvious, that say, essentially, if people don't have their basic needs met, they don't care about democracy, right? Nobody wants to starve in order to have an election. And so the problem in Ukraine is going to be rebuilding, right? This is an enormously expensive task, and it's one that you can't even start now because the Russians will just destroy whatever is built. So this is what I mean about Zelensky winning the post-war, if he's even still in power. Remember what happened to Winston Churchill, right? Will seven-plus million Ukrainian refugees return to their country? Will Zelensky be able to clean up corruption not, not only during the war but after the war when money is flowing back into the country? And this problem hasn't gone away. It's still Eastern Europe, right? We have to, these are hard truths, right? One of the things that happens in wartime is that people become more filled with hate. Um, one of my colleagues had a wonderful line, which is, in order to fight, we must hate, but we must not hate forever. So what happens to all of that hate whenever the war ends, if it ever ends? All of these are, are, are enormous problems for Ukraine, where we must help Ukraine, but they're not easily solved. Then there's the question about international law, right? What happens when international law, law is so flaunted, is so bloodied, is so beaten, and when Russia has been surprisingly effective at manipulating the narrative, right? At saying, oh, this is, this is a law only for the powerful. This is a law that's shaped only by the United States. And if you object in any way to an American-dominated world order, right? We talk about the, the rules-based international order. If you don't like that American domination of the world order, well then, support us. And creating that false choice, right? 
where anyone, be it China, be it Vietnam, India, Brazil, has a quibble with American power. Let's admit it. Like, lots of countries have quibbles with American power and how we use it. And they must be on Russia's side. Right? That's a very powerful argument, even though it's totally specious. And Russia has made a lot of hay out of it. So, what can we do about all of this? I have no idea, but I hope this guy does. Um, no, seriously, I, I promised that I wouldn't give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. I wouldn't give you an easy answer, because the truth is there really aren't any. Um, but I think one thing we can do is be as absolutely crystal clear about where American interests lie as possible. And, of course, it's, it's this guy more than anyone who has to do that. Um, what the White House has said so far I think is exactly right. Goal number one, Ukraine needs to survive. It needs to survive, I would say, as a functional democracy that defines its own future, but it needs to survive first and foremost. Goal number two, Putin has to fail. He has to fail to conquer Ukraine. He has to fail to expand this war. He has to fail to continue this war forever and try to wait us out. And number three, the principle that might makes right in international relations needs to be weakened. The Chinas of the world need to see that you can't just force an outcome by having more guns. Right? Those are the White House's three basic descriptions of the American national interest, and I think they're exactly right. Um, I would add a couple more. Um, I would say there needs to be accountability for Putin, and there needs to be an opportunity for the Russian people to choose a better path. This can't just become a zero sum where Putin losing means that all of Russia, that the Russian people forever are losers, because then there will be another war. They will fight again, they will invade again, they will rise up again. It will be the early 20th century all over again. And so we need to offer another path, and that's something that I hope we can talk about a little bit more in the Q&A. Um, and I also think we need to try very hard to prevent the worst outcomes. That's why I talked about the risk of nuclear escalation. A lot of people, I think, correctly say that has been managed. It's not likely to happen but it's not zero probability. So we have to think very carefully about each step that we take. And again, I think that the US government's been reasonably good at that. Um, and we need to make sure that Ukraine wins the peace. I talked about corruption, I talked about rebuilding. That means that we in the West, we have the money, we have to understand what the costs are going to be. Um, and they're going to be long-term costs. It's estimated that rebuilding Ukraine is going to cost about a trillion dollars. And, and I personally, I think that's probably an underestimate. This is a country that had a kind of undervalued GDP before the war of about 200 or $250 billion. Um, everything's been obliterated. You know, Something like a fifth of the population is either internally or externally displaced. I think this is going to be a trillions of dollars proposition. And by comparison, the vaunted Marshall Plan was $200 billion in today's money. So we're talking about you know, nearly an order of magnitude, more than the Marshall Plan, um, something on the order of what we spent, frankly, in Iraq and Afghanistan, which you know, maybe the average American didn't notice. So maybe we can do that. Um, but we have to have the clarity of purpose. We have to be motivated to do it. Next slide. And lastly, let me try, if I can, <laughs> to bring this home to all of you. I know pickup trucks are popular here in Colorado. My, my kids who came with me insisted that we rent a giant pickup truck, which I had a lot of trouble parking in the parking lot. Um, what can we all do? We need to be active and informed citizens. We need to ask our elected leaders the hard questions. We need to not always bow to consensus and you know, rely on wearing our positions on our sleeve. Silly bumper stickers don't really help anyone. Um, we stand with Ukraine. Why do we stand with Ukraine? For how long? At what cost? Right? Those are the questions we all, each of us as individuals, 
need to be prepared to answer and not just wait for our leaders to spoon feed them to us. We need to support individuals, right? People matter, individual refugees, sister cities programs, exchange programs. We need to be careful about emotional actions like boycotts, right? You boycott Stoli vodka that's actually made in Latvia. You boycott Russian restaurants that are actually run by Ukrainians or Uzbeks, right? Um, if you meet a Russian here in the West, here in America, here in Colorado, here in Europe, I can almost guarantee you that that Russian hates Putin way more than you do, right? So we need to be human about all of this. And lastly, keep informed. Um, I, I recommend if, if, if you didn't turn off your camera completely, you can take a, a little uh, snapshot of that screen. Uh, these are the sources that I would recommend. People often ask me that question. So there it is for you. And um, yeah, thank you very much. It's Okay, well, you've obviously stirred up a lot of questions, so we'll, we'll get through as many as we can before the closing time. Um, considering that there is no realistic chance of Russia conquering Ukraine, and would you agree with that, why do you believe they continue to prosecute the war instead of just declaring victory and leaving? That's a great question. Um, I, I wish I could be 100% confident I think there are real risks uh, of the kind of war in which, you know, you, Ukraine as a whole might again be at jeopardy. I mean, had Putin invaded with an army of two million, I, I think he could have, in fact, overrun Ukrainian defenses. Had the United States and Europe not been as forthcoming with intelligence sharing on the eve of the invasion, that was really the key. It wasn't the weapons. It was the intelligence sharing. Uh, I think the invasion might have been more successful. And so now, the kinds of things that I worry about um, are that the Ukrainians are entirely justified in saying that we will take back every inch of our territory, which means Crimea as well. Um, I think there's a decent chance if they go into Crimea, that could actually be very useful for Putin, that he could use that because Crimea is seen by Russians as somehow rightfully theirs, and he could really use that to mobilize Russian society. The other one is something else I think Ukraine is completely justified in doing, uh, but that I think Putin would use, and, and that is, uh, some of you may have read this morning about another uh, Ukrainian drone strike on Moscow. There was one uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, what the Ukrainians are, are, are signaling here is, you know, the Russians are bombing their cities nearly daily, right, are killing, you know, huge numbers of civilians, and what they're saying is, we have to have a deterrent. We have to be able to strike directly back at Russia, and that means Russia, Russia, not just Russian troops that are on Ukrainian soil. The problem with that is going to be Putin will use that to mobilize Russian society, and there are 140 million Russians. And a fully mobilized Russian society that is fully mobilized to attack Ukraine worries me about what it could achieve, even with the maximum amount of, of Western support. So, so yes, I'm worried about that. Um, why does Putin keep at it at this sort of low boil? I think he is, I, I, I can't read his mind, but his actions suggest that he thinks there is still victory to be had. It won't be what he thought it was a year and a half ago, but it may be something like holding the territory that he's got. It may be something like forcing the kind of concessions from Ukraine that he has always wanted, not joining NATO, whatever else it may be. Um, and I think the other possibility is that he thinks he can wait us out. 
Um, and he may not be wrong about that, right? I mean, you know, attention spans for this type of far-off conflict are famously short in wealthy democratic countries where the voters get to decide what happens next. And I think that Putin has a pretty negative view of the average American uh, and thinks that he can wait us out, that we'll get lazy and complacent. Okay. And combining a couple of questions, do the majority of Russians believe that the war in Ukraine is justified? And is there any level of unrest that threatens Putin in any way inside Russia? So the answer to the second question is um, not right now, but there easily could be. Authoritarian regimes are always stable until they're not. Um, I'll, I can say more about that in a moment. In terms of where public opinion is, I, I track this as closely as anyone can. You always have to remember about opinion polling in an authoritarian country that you take everything with a grain of salt, right? Mm. When uh, even if they're doing, you know, carefully selected statistical sampling, someone calls and says, you know, is this Mrs. Ivanova? What do you think of the leader, right? I mean, <laughs> Mrs. Ivanova might be reluctant to say what she really thinks of the leader. Um, but that said, you know, fairly reliable methodology, fairly reliable institutions are coming back pretty consistently with around 60% support for the war. Um, but it's very uneven, right? So you can have a revolution, and I know this because it happened 100 plus years ago, that is basically entirely an urban revolution. You know, people in the countryside in, in the Russian Empire were not rising up demanding Soviet power because the Soviets came in and took all their stuff. Right? It was a few tens of thousands of workers and activists in the cities who basically made the Bolshevik coup happen and made Soviet power come about. And so I actually think it is quite possible that opposition to the war in Russian cities, where it's already quite strong, could become stronger. I think a few more disastrously bad decisions by Putin. I think continuing lowering of the standard of living in Russia, which is happening, right? It is, it is hard for them to get the kinds of consumer goods that Russians have become used to after 30 years of being part of the global market. Um, I think those kinds of things could make the readiness of the people to jump into an opportunity, but there would still have to be an opportunity. And I think it's that background, that I think is why otherwise sensible people, people who I would otherwise call sort of allies and even friends, were so excited about the Prigozhin mutiny because they thought, oh, this is a moment and now people will exploit this moment and people will come into the streets and then there will be a democratic revolution. That's why I say be very careful what you wish for because again, you know, the original Russian revolution was kind of a democratic revolution and Lenin used it to seize power for Bolshevism which then held sway for eight decades and did some rather nasty stuff, so. I know, I know in the past you've been concerned about the flood of young Russian professionals who are leaving the country. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little about that? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, do you mind if I take a little bit of this? Um, <laughs> sorry. So, um, yeah, this is, this is a huge priority for the U.S.-Russia Foundation, uh, where I have the privilege of working, um, and, and it is a huge priority for me personally. I mean, I will simply say um, people to whom I'm very close uh, have left, not all of them. Um, some who have stayed have stayed not because they support the war, but because they feel they have to stay in order uh, to prevent the regime from doing worse things internally and hurting more people. And I think, I think that's a very fair case. Um, those who have left, I think, uh, need, first of all, our understanding and our acceptance. We cannot treat these people as if they're representatives of a guilty and evil nation. Um, and when I say we, I want to be very clear about this. I'm talking about Americans. I'm talking about Western Europeans. I completely understand like my colleague said, Ukrainians have to hate. They have to hate or they can't fight. They can't hate forever. 
right? At some point, this has to end. But um, I think the rest of us, I think we just have to be understanding uh, of humanity on a human level. If any of us found ourselves caught in that situation, we would flee. We would protect our children and our families. So first of all, we have to understand them. We have to welcome them. We have to give them safe harbor whenever and wherever we can. Then I think we have to recognize their potential because what's different about a lot of this generation is it is a generation. It's, it's young people. It's highly educated, um, highly well-informed, technically skilled. A lot of them are entrepreneurs. A lot of them are IT, you know, outsourcing type of people who work with Western firms already. That's why they're well-informed about the world. They're not living in a village somewhere in Siberia. Um, these are people who have enormous potential to change the future of Russia, but not if they end up driving taxis, you know, in wherever, France, Germany, the United States. Um, we have to find ways to keep them organized and to show them that there is still potential for them to go back and there is still potential for them to impact the future of their country. And right now, I also pay close attention to opinion polls among the Russian emigres. They all want to go back, overwhelmingly, 90-plus percent. It's, only a, it's less than 10 percent that say, nope, this is forever, we've given up, we're like all the previous waves. And that makes this wave of immigrants quite different, at least for now. So I feel like it's a one-way street. Sure, we can conclude that they're irrelevant and they won't have a prayer against Putin and his security forces and so on, and so we could not support them. If we do that, they will be irrelevant. But if we support them, there's a chance. And going a little further afield, uh, the Russian economy and the China partnership show mm -hmm. some critical weaknesses. Can we exploit those? I just, I just read a draft essay about this. Um, I, think, I think we have to be really, really careful. Right now, we're in a very favorable situation, which is uh, Chinese experts and Chinese officials, possibly including Xi Jinping, again, I can't read his mind any more than I can Putin's, uh, see value in being part of the global system, the global trading system, financial system, and even to some extent the rules-based order, although they have some quibbles with it. Um, and for that reason, they are to a degree complying with sanctions and isolation of Russia, um, which is the best way to weaken Putin's war machine. It's the best way to sort of raise the level of kind of percolating discontent within the society, all the things that we want to achieve by means short of war. The problem is if we push too hard, what happens? At what point does Beijing conclude? At what point does our rhetoric that says this is a war of democracies against authoritarians and we tell the Chinese what side of the barricade they should be on, right? As opposed to being able to straddle and sort of play all sides and have a little bit of their cake and eat it too. Um, I worry about what happens if we push too hard. We say, oh, we know your sanctions busting over here and over there. And it's true, they are. But like, in 80-plus percent of cases, they're complying with sanctions. Why? Because Chinese companies want to do business with the United States. Don't force a choice if we don't know for sure what they're going to choose. And, and that's really my big concern. I think we're in a favorable position right now, and I think the Biden administration agrees. And I think that's why recently Janet Yellen and Tony Blinken went to Beijing, and they went with a conciliatory message saying... We want to work with you. You have a peace plan for Ukraine? Fantastic. It's a stupid peace plan, but great. Let's talk about it, right? That's a much smarter approach than saying, go join Putin. We don't like you, right? Because fighting Russia and China at the same time is like Kissinger's worst nightmare, and that's not a nightmare I want to see. Good point. Uh, the Russian government and the oligarchs have been descri uh, descri described more like a crime syndicate 
than a traditional government. Might the oligarchs ever conclude that Putin's leadership is bad for business, however unsavory it may be? Oh, yeah. They've already concluded that. So there are multiple Russian oligarchs, and they all come in different flavors, right? That's the thing. So there are oligarchs from the Yeltsin era from the 1990s who have, who have given a bunch of money to Ukraine, who have left Russia, who have tried to get their assets out. Um, and, you know, some of them have wound up being sanctioned anyway, and others are mm -hmm. still continuing uh, and, and basically trying to distance themselves from the regime. But by definition, they also have very little ability to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. They can't change what's happening inside. Then you have those who remain in Russia simply because they've chosen to stay with their money, right? Putin holds on to their assets, and they want to keep their assets. Um, and so they just basically keep quiet, even though they know this is terrible for business. They hate this. It's idiotic. And the reason we know this is because they've literally been recorded. They've been intercepted in conversations saying this stuff. And that's been broadcast. Again, the U.S. intelligence community has been amazingly forthcoming uh, with some of these intercepts. And then there's a third category of oligarchs. And these oligarchs are like basically Putin's inner circle. They're his best friends. They are the people who, like him, came from basically nothing or from sort of ordinary Soviet security backgrounds and now are billionaires, are like multi, multi, multi billionaires. And yes, it's true. They can no longer vacation you know, at their villa north of Rome or south of Paris or whatever it is. Um, but that's okay because you know, they are the boyars of the modern Russian empire and they can do whatever they want in Russia. So that's a pretty good life for them. And they don't really care that Putin is waging uh, a stupid, failed war. Some of them would really prefer to help wage the war more effectively because they were part of the, the group that convinced him that this was a good idea in the first place. So they come in different flavors. Yeah. And we did have a question from somebody asking for the slide again with the information sources. Hmm. If you could put that up again. Uh, uh, what evidence do you have for uh, your assertion that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is likely to spark any kind of world war? Well, thankfully, there's, there's not a lot of evidence yet other than history. Um, again, the concern that I have is you're talking about, you know, two, you're talking about the world's biggest country on one side and Europe's biggest country on the other side. You're talking about the continents that gave us two world wars before, and you're talking about a powder keg moment when it does seem like East Asia is on a knife's edge, the Middle East is on a knife's edge, and a lot of the narrative around what's going on is one that we've seen before. It's, it's one of these sort of nationalist ideas on steroids, you know, imperial fever dreams. These are the things that tend to bring you wider conflicts, but the basic reason is a very human reason, and this is one of those stubborn, sticky facts, and that's um, when someone is already fighting for his life, he's perfectly happy to have other people fighting for their lives as well. And so, in a sense, widening the conflict is in everyone's interest who's in the conflict. How much does the U.S. 2024 election importance mean to the war ending or escalating? Well, a lot of that depends on what happens in the election. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't think... So in general, and, and I could imagine maybe there are other questions out there uh, about you know, the role of different American leaders and different American political parties vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine. Um, one thing you just have to take my word for is that US policy hasn't changed radically from Democratic to Republican administration, from Congress to Congress. Yes, a lot of rhetoric and a lot of the US political debate changes, but you know, Raise your hand if you've ever heard a politician say something that he or she then doesn't do, right? <laughs> so 
There's a lot of debate about, well, we shouldn't be spending all this money on Ukraine, we should spend it on veterans, whatever, right? Um, but, you know, that's politically useful to the people who are saying it. It tends to be that when push comes to shove, when there are votes in the Congress to either authorize or not authorize assistance, it's overwhelming and it's bipartisan, which makes me think, you know, almost anything that happens in 2024 isn't going to change policy on the ground. Um, what will change is perception. So, you know, Ukrainians can be forgiven for being worried that Americans will be less forthcoming with our support, uh, you know, if people who have said they want to be less forthcoming are elected. But I discount that by quite a lot. Okay. Do you think that the current lack of success of the Ukrainian offensive will have an impact on outside support for Ukraine? Um, that has been said many, many times. Um, and I think it depends very much on what you believe. You notice I, I, not one pitch that I gave for why we need to support Ukraine and why Ukraine needs to survive and prevail was they've got the wind at their back. I never said that. I never said because they're better fighters than the Russians or anything like that. Look, the, they, could be, they could be losing right now, and I'd still make the same arguments about why we need to see Ukraine survive as an integral democratic state that controls its own destiny and why Putin needs to lose. That's asking a lot. That's an enormously tall order. It's a lot easier to say, you know, root for the Super Bowl champions, right? Root for the winners. Um, I never liked that narrative because I don't think it's realistic. I think it's very, very hard to dislodge. I'm not a military scientist, but, you know, what is it, a three-to-one uh, advantage that defenders have, something like that? It's very hard to dislodge a massive army that's been dug in, and that's the task that Ukraine has before it now. And and you, you remember the map I showed you of just how enormous this front is, right? It's not, you know, a small war. It's a huge war. Um, and, and Ukraine at the same time, while they have gained experience and motivation and hardware and financial assistance, they've lost people. They've lost, you know, literally tens of thousands of their best and most experienced fighters, uh, and they've lost millions of their potential military recruits because of internal and external displacement of the population. So this is a, this is a tough hill to climb. Right. Um, two questions related, and I think it's about time for us to finish up. Uh, one is, how have your own views on Russia and Ukraine changed over the course of the war? And then somewhat related to that, what is your vision for the U.S.-Russia Foundation going forward and what you can do to help? So the single biggest change in my views has been that I, at least right now, I don't think we can achieve much through negotiation. I'm someone who would have and did sacrifice a lot to fight for dialogue and diplomacy and negotiation. I don't like to have to admit this, but I just don't. I don't see how it changes anything with the state of this conflict. Um, and one reason that's particularly hard for me to say is because um, I feel very close to the people who have tried to do what I have tried to do on the other sides, the Ukrainians who've tried this, the Russians who've tried this. And, and what I'm effectively saying is, well, it doesn't matter what they do. Now they just need to put on a uniform and go fight and die. And that's a pretty horrible situation, but I think that's the situation. And my views on that have changed because I think reality has changed. Um, with the U.S.-Russia Foundation, uh, I believe, um, of course, I, I have 
12 bosses. I work for a board, and what matters a lot more is what they believe. Um, but I believe that we have a historic opportunity right now to support the future of a democratic, civilized, rule of law society in Russia. It's something that millions of Russian people want. It is not meaningful to you know, offer a survey to a country of people who are, you know, to a large degree, dependent on state propaganda. Uh, their jobs are dependent on the regime that increasingly controls the economy. It's not a free market in Russia anymore. Um, that's something, obviously, to which the foundation is committed, bringing a free market back to Russia. And I believe now is not the time to abandon that cause, to say, you know, this is unimportant or relative to other things we could spend our money on. This doesn't matter because I think the United States is still the single most important actor in the world. Um, the moral weight of what we choose to do and what we say we care about matters enormously to inspiring others to take action. Um, there was a the question earlier about um, what to do about Russian exiles, about people who've left Russia, brought to my mind this New York Times series that looked at Russians and Ukrainians who made it to, to South America and Central America and went over land, you know, the whole Darien Gap, that whole story we read about with, with economic migrants and refugees from Latin America. Well, you know, tens of thousands of Russians and Ukrainians did this. And there was one story that I'll never forget because it was about, you know, a sort of 30-year-old Russian couple that had made it to the border and then was picked up by, you know, border security, as happens, and uh, the, the husband found himself in a jail, in a cage, in Louisiana, and is brought before an immigration judge and asked to pay something like $40,000 bail, which of course is like, you know, an unheard of amount for them. And the reaction, quite understandably, of his wife was, if we'd wanted to be locked up and had bribes extracted from us, we could have just stayed in Russia. Um, so, so part of our duty, it's something that's very, very hard to do right now, it is to try to deal with the bigger picture systemic and institutional obstacles to creating an environment that supports Russians in exile, Ukrainians in exile, people who want to change the future of this region, uh, and, and not just pushing them down the path that you know, everyone else who comes to America or to Europe uh, ends up following, which Lord knows is a pretty attractive path. Thank you, Matt, for your expertise and for your humanity. Thank you for listening to Seminars at Steamboat. We'd like to thank KUNC for hosting our podcast. Support for seminars comes from the generous support of individuals and organizations in our community. For more information about our organization or to view the video recording of this or any of our previous seminars, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org.